You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. Good morning, Radiant Church. Again, so good to see all of you. If you are new with us, thanks for making Radiant a part of your weekend. My name is Marco, and I am the lead pastor here this morning. We um, are in week number four of a message series, a five-week message series. So next week, we're going to wrap this all up uh, entitled Pray Like Jesus. And we are examining the prayer life of Jesus and how the way Jesus prayed should really actually impact the way that we pray. And last week, if you were with us or if you need to catch up, go on YouTube or Facebook. You can watch services there. You can also listen to our, our podcast on your Android or iPhone, uh, whatever device that you might have. But listen, last week we looked at the Lord's Prayer, and that is found in Matthew chapter 6. And today we are going to examine the Gethsemane Prayer in Matthew 26. And I'll explain what that's all about here in a few moments. But if the Lord's Prayer is Jesus' model prayer, the, the type of prayer that all of us should aim to pray, the Gethsemane Prayer is the prayer that Jesus prays in a circumstance of overwhelming grief and sorrow. You see, every one of us, every single one of us needs the Gethsemane prayer because all of us will face times in our lives where we have exceeding pressure and sorrow, maybe the pain, um, whatever we're enduring is far too much for us to carry on our own. And we find ourselves crying out to God in desperation and in a few moments, I want you to go ahead and look at Matthew 26. You can get that ready if you have a smartphone or if you have a, your Bible with you. Before we dive into the message, I mean, into uh, Matthew 26, let's take a, a couple of moments and let's pray. Let's ask God to speak to us here collectively. And if you're watching online, pray that God would just meet you right in your living room, right where you're at. Let's go ahead and pray, church. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And God, we thank you for this, this time or this morning of worship that we already had. God, as we continue to lift up your name, I pray that you might just draw men and women and children to you right now, God. God, that your presence would be manifest in this place, Lord. Um, God, uh, use your word to convict us. Use your word to challenge us. We didn't come here because we want to remain the same. We came this morning because we want to be changed by the power of the Spirit of God in Jesus Christ. And so, God, use your word to encourage us, challenge us, and change us so we might look more like Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, here's what we're going to do. Before we look at Matthew 26, I want to sort of set the stage and give us a little bit of context um, before we look at this chapter. Now, up until this point here in Matthew 26, we see that Jesus and his disciples had already had the Passover meal. It's the meal that we know of, of as the Last Supper at this time. And everything is going well in the meal, except it takes a bit of a dark turn when Jesus reveals that there's someone at the table who would betray him. 
And in fact, just several verses before the story or the prayer that we're going to look at, Judas had already agreed to, to turn over Jesus, to betray Jesus in a conversation that he had had with the chief priest. Now, Jesus also tells everyone or, or says to Peter that Peter would actually disown him. Or he actually says this, that every one of the disciples would, would fall away from him on account of him. Now, Peter sort of pipes up and he insists, Lord, no matter what happens to you, I will never disown you. I will always be at your side. Of course, we all know how that turns out, right? And, and uh, Peter does end up disowning him three different times. And so the disciples and Jesus, they then head to Gethsemane, which is located on the western slope of the Mount of Olives facing Jerusalem. And Gethsemane is still there. It does look a little different, but it's still there. And my wife and I had the opportunity to, to visit there uh, just two years ago. And Gethsemane literally means oil press, oil press. And it was named this because the place where Jesus prayed, there was a, an olive grove and these olive trees. And I want to just, um, I want to show you a picture actually of a, of an olive press or an oil press. You can put that on the screen right now. Just to, to kind of bring this to life a bit more for all of you. If you look at this uh, sort of giant contraption here, you can see the round base. You would actually put all of the olives here in that round base. And do you notice there's kind of this wheel structure? And the wheel was extremely heavy. And the wheel would be uh, pushed or pulled by uh, an animal or perhaps by a couple of people, and that heavy wheel would then crush the olives, and then, of course, out of the olives would come olive oil, oil, right? And so, obviously, this is why it's called an oil press. And I want you to, to see the significance of this oil press of Gethsemane, because that's literally what it means, this oil press, because Gethsemane is the place where Jesus would be pressed, where Jesus would be crushed, and where out of him there would be this outpouring of heartfelt prayer to God the Father. The oil press gets sent to me. It's no coincidence that this is the place where Jesus experienced extreme pressure, and he was overwhelmed with sorrow. So we're going to look at Matthew 26. If you have your Bible, we're going to begin in verse number 36. And here's what it says. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Remember, an oil press. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful. And troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Can you imagine feeling so sorrowful you just felt like you wanted to die? This is what Jesus felt like here. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will. But as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. 
couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He's like, come on, guys, can't you pray for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but I tell you, the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more, one more time. And he prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. I want you to just think about this moment for, for, for a few moments with me. Jesus is he's betrayed and he's abandoned at, at the most crucial time of his life. And I, I don't know if any of, uh, any of us can really think of what it must have felt like to, to feel this unimaginable burden. And not to mention the fact that really the sins of the world are sort of hanging on the shoulders of Jesus. Jesus cries out. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Let me just ask you a question, and, and you don't have to answer out loud by any means. And if you're watching in your living room right now, I just want you to think about this. But here's my question. Have you had your Gethsemane moment? Have you ever had a Gethsemane moment? Have you ever been overwhelmed by what was happening to you in that moment, in that time uh, where you just felt lonely, where maybe you felt abandoned. Maybe um, your best friend or a family member uh, stabbed you in the back, and they stabbed you in the front, and they betrayed you. They walked away from you in the time that you needed them the most. You thought they were always going to be there for you, and then they walk out. They walk away. They said, I'll be with you for the rest of your life. We're going to be best friends. And then all of a sudden, they walk out. And you're like, what happened to you? You said you were going to be there for me. You said you'd always be there. And there's sorrow, and you feel like you've been abandoned. You've been betrayed. It's the weakest moment of your life. And, and, and in this prayer, what I want us to notice is that Jesus, he doesn't distrust. He doesn't disobey. He doesn't deny or disregard his father. Instead, Jesus desires God. And he turns to his father in prayer. And this is, this is remarkable. This is a big deal, actually. This is a big deal because, listen, the Son of God needed to pray. Just, just think about that for a moment. Jesus, the Son of God, he needed to pray. And you're like, well, I know he prayed. No, no, no. He needed to pray because I think maybe some of us think, like, Jesus doesn't need to pray. I mean, he's, he's God in the flesh. Why would he need to pray? And for some of you, maybe if you're new to church or church world or Christianity or you're here and you're kind of, you're trying to figure this whole thing out, maybe you thought of Jesus as this ethereal figure sort of floating around, right, in Never a problem or a care, just sort of floating around in Jerusalem. Bless you, child. 
bless you, my son. It's like, that's what you picture Jesus. Let me just tell you, Jesus was a real man. Real pain. Real sorrow. Real grief. He was like you and me. I mean, I mean, he was in the flesh. And this is a reminder for all of us this morning. If Jesus needed to pray in his Gethsemane moment, you need to pray in yours. If Jesus, the Son of God, needed to pray in his Gethsemane moment, guess what? <laughs> you need to pray too. You're going to need to pray. And for some of you, I know, I, I, I know, I know this is your case. You only pray when, when things hit the wall, when stuff happens. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Right? She breaks up with you. Oh, my heart. Oh, what am I? My heart, will it go on? Right? You're singing Celine Dion songs in the bathroom. <laughs> Jesus, find me another one. <laughs> right? Some of you, it's much, much more serious, though. You know what I'm talking about. If Jesus needed to pray, you need to pray. He was so anguished. Did, did you know this? That he sweat. His sweat was like drops of blood. This is an extreme medical condition, and it's only possible for those experiencing the most devastating distress humanly possible. Very few people ever get to this point. Jesus was devastated. He was mournful. He was uh, anguished. And it's quite likely that we too will experience a Gethsemane moment, or perhaps for you, moments. More occurrences, several occurrences. So I have another question for you this morning, and I just, I just want you to think about it. Just reflect upon this prayer. I know this is a pretty heavy prayer for a Sunday morning, but I promise you it's meaningful. But the question this morning for you is this, what do you do in those moments? What do you do in those moments? Because we're going to have those moments. I hate to tell you, but I want to be honest with you. We're going to have these moments. What do you do when your spouse says, I'm leaving? What do you do in that moment when your doctor comes in the room and says, it's cancer? What do you do when you find out that a dear loved one unexpectedly passed away? It was a tragic accident. What do you do in those moments? Let me first just say this. What you don't do, what you don't do, this is really important, what you don't do is pretend like everything is okay. What you don't do is pretend like things are just fine. A lot of Christians do that. <laughs> it's okay, I'll be fine, I'm all right, I'm okay. No, I don't need your help, I'm fine. It's like, no, you're, you're falling apart. You're not just fine. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to hold it all together. Let me just tell you this so you can breathe a sigh of relief, every single one of you. It's okay for you to admit that life is complicated it's messy, and sometimes it's very, very painful. It's okay to just admit that. Jesus was sorrowful to the point of death. He's beyond sad. He's beyond devastated. I mean, his soul is just wounded, wounded. Why, why are we, Pastor Marco, why are we focusing in on this so much? I mean, let's just talk about 
I'm blessed, I'm highly favored, and all that good stuff. And we, we'll get to those sermons, I promise you. They're, they're all in the Bible. Why are we focusing in on this moment so much? What's the big deal? Let me say this. It's one of my big points this morning is that your theology has to have a place for suffering. Your theology, your study of God, what you know about who God is, has to have a place, a room for it, for suffering. What am I talking about? I want you to think of this. Think of it like this. What happens, for example, when your theology teaches that Christians are always wealthy and you end up poor? What happens when your theology teaches that Christians are always healthy and then you end up sick, chronic pain? What happens when your theology teaches you that you are always, you always will be victorious in life and you end up defeated? What happens when your theology teaches you that nothing will ever go wrong in your life and then all of a sudden everything just goes wrong, like terribly wrong? I mean, what, what do you do with that type of theology? Because here's the deal. If we fall into a gospel that teaches us that life will always go our way, we'll always be healthy, we'll always have great relationships, we're always going to have money in the bank, everything's going to be 100% perfect in our lives. The moment when life doesn't go like this, it doesn't go our way, we'll walk away from God and we'll walk away from our faith. I've seen it too many times. Walk away from God, we walk away from our faith. Why? Because up until that moment, you've treated God more like a genie in a bottle or Santa Claus than the God of the universe that teaches us in Scripture that he's holy, sovereign, and all-loving. If we don't have a place for suffering in our theology, we'll blame God. And we'll walk away from him. If Jesus suffered... We shouldn't expect that we will never suffer. Jesus goes to the darkest place. He experiences the lowest of lows. He experiences pain and suffering. So why? So, so what? So that when we go through our dark uh, time of the night, when we go through trials and suffering, when we're sorrowful, listen, we know that Jesus has already endured the same thing that we've endured and that he is with us. He is accustomed to that. He knows that pain. Have you ever had this experience? Have you ever met someone who's been through a, a, difficult, a difficult time in life? Like, like something similar, like the, almost the exact same thing. Like maybe you lost a parent to cancer. And, and you meet someone who's also lost a parent to cancer or, or a loved one or a spouse. You meet someone else who lost their spouse to cancer. I mean, what happens when you meet that person? It's like a sigh of relief. It's like, oh, man, wow, I'm so grateful. What do you say? You say, you get it. You understand my pain. You know what that's like, right? You identify with me. I can identify with you. I'm so grateful that we, we have a friendship. I'm so grateful that I can talk to you. Why? Because you get me. 
You know me. You know what this is like. You walk through this just like I did. Friends, let me just tell you this this morning. This is Jesus for every single one of us. Whatever season you've walked through or walking through right now, Jesus identifies with you. He is familiar with sorrow, with pain, with suffering, with being so overwhelmed with grief that he felt like he was going to die in that moment. Jesus is familiar with your situation. He's with you. He's for you. You're not alone. So how does Jesus begin this prayer then here formally? I want want to point out to you in verse number uh, 39, it says this, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Let's let's talk about this first for a few moments. Um, What is Jesus referring to? When he says this cup, is it like a literal cup he's talking about? Well, not really, okay? The cup that Jesus is referring to, based upon how this term or this phrase, the cup, is used in the Old Testament, this cup is referring to God's wrath and judgment poured out on sinners as from a cup. God's wrath and judgment poured out on sinners as from a cup. So literally, just imagine a cup sort of being poured out. It's the language here. It's this metaphor for what Jesus is saying. Jesus, Jesus is saying, if there's a way you can take away or allow me to, to, to avoid this cup of wrath and judgment that's going to be poured out on me for the sins of humanity... God, if there's a way I can avoid that, like, let me take that way. But nevertheless, not my will, your will. I want you to look at what Paul says about this cup, about this wrath in Romans 2.5. The apostle Paul says, but because of your stubbornness, notice this, and your unrepentant heart, you are what? Storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed. Oh, this is a cheerful message this morning, Pastor Marco. <laughs> so quiet in here. I understand this. Because why? Because this flies in the face of our culture. Right? God's wrath is not a popular topic in churches. I get that. Not a lot of preachers want to talk about the wrath of God. And some preachers who do, they talk about it way too much, right? The wrath of God is not a very popular. I want, I want the fluffy God, Marco. I want the teddy bear God. The, the one I can just, he hugs me, makes me feel all like, you know, Teddy Ruxpin. You know what I mean? Like, he's my best friend. Where, where's that God? It's this wrath God. That's, I don't want that. I'm offended at that, Marco. That's, ugh. I don't know if I like Radiant Church. You're talking about the wrath of God. You see, here's the the reality of our culture, of where we're at this morning. You see, many people want a God who is more like a vending machine, who will give them what they want when they ask, and they want less of a God who will hold them accountable for all the things they've done. You see, we live in what's quickly becoming 
a post-Christian culture. And it's very, very popular to say this. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm spiritual, but not religious. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It's code word for this. I believe in God. I just don't want him telling me how to live. I believe in God. I just don't want him telling me what to do. I'm spiritual, but not religious. And so we live our lives sort of believing in God while we're holding on to these sinful behaviors. We know we're living in sin, but we're trying to hold on to God a little bit, trying to squeeze a little bit of God in there, hoping that it's all going to work out, that we'll be blessed, but not understanding that our sinful behavior separates us from God. It prevents us from living a flourishing life. It's, it's actually preventing us from living under the blessing of God. And we'll do things. We'll, we'll continue to do things our way. Again, trying to sneak in a little bit of God. But let me just, friends, let me just tell you, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Too many Christians are trying to hold on to the world and the world's ways and just get a little bit of God on the side. That's not how it works. When we, when we have this attitude, we're not understanding that God hates sin. We're not understanding that sin separates us from God. We're not understanding that all sin leads to death. We're not understanding that sin is entirely destructive and it wants to have your, his way in your life, its way in your life. It wants to destroy you. We're not understanding that. We're like, well, I just want to kind of, it's more convenient if we do it this way, Pastor. It's easier. No, stop. Like seriously, think about this for a moment. Jesus is calling us to repentance. Look at what Romans 6.23 says. It says this, for the wages of sin is death. Just pause there for a few moments. What you're earning for yourself is what? Is death. There's good news here. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I love this verse. Leave it up there for a few moments. Because Paul lays out the bad news before the good news. Because in order for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. You have to understand this. It can't just be good news. There has to be some bad news to make it very, very good news. And the bad news is that Paul is saying, hey, what you're earning for yourself if you live a life of unrepentant sin is death. That's what you have coming for you. And, and Paul wraps it up and puts a little bow on it and makes it sound good because the second half of the verse, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, we need the bad news before we can receive the good news. Come on, somebody. Amen. So we think of God's, or we think of this cup of God's wrath, or as we think about it, I want, I want us to just think about this. Uh, think about a scenario. What happens when someone sins against you? Think about this for a moment. Maybe, maybe I'm going to use kind of an extreme case. Somebody breaks into your house while you're not there, and they, let's just say they, they take $500. And let's just say they take your MacBook, and they take um, some of your jewelry, it's, it's kind of pricey. They, they take some other valuable possessions that are, that are worth money. And you get home and you're, you and your wife or your husband get home and you, you find like your house is ransacked and you're like, oh, my goodness, what happened? And you, 
you look around and you, you discover things are missing. And where's my money? Oh, my gosh, they took my money. Oh, my gosh, my, value, my valuables are gone. Oh, I, I feel so violated. I feel robbed. They took, they took things that belong to me. Can I just ask you a question? What do you, what do you want in that moment? What do you want in that moment? I'll tell you what I want, and, and then you can disagree or agree. But here's what I would want. I want justice. What's that mean? That means I want the, the person or the persons who did this, I want them to be held accountable for it. I want them to pay the price for it. And I want them to go to prison or jail for it. And then I want them to restore those things back to me. At least what I've lost, I want them to be restored back to me. Listen, all of us are seeking justice, will seek justice when we're wronged purposefully, when we're sinned against purposefully. Let me just say this, though. But if we desire, if we seek justice, shouldn't God also get his justice for those who reject and sin against him? The answer is this. He should. He should. So for those who continually reject Christ, reject his forgiveness, reject his love, reject his grace, reject his gift of salvation, Paul says in Romans 2 that they're storing up God's wrath. They haven't gotten away with it. They're storing up God's wrath. And this cup of God's wrath will one day be poured out on them. So listen, there's only two options for us. Let me just make this really black and white, okay? I like simplicity, and I know you do too. There's only two options. Number one, first option is this. We drink the cup of God's wrath, and that's hell. The second option, I think it's the better one. I think you should choose the second one. The second one is that Jesus drinks the cup for us. And he is our substitute. There's only two choices. You don't get away with it. You either drink the cup of God's wrath, hell, or you trust Jesus. And he takes the cup for you. And that's what we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus taking the sin upon the world, upon his shoulders. He's asking the Father, God, if, if there's another way that we can do this, I mean, I will take that way. But Jesus drinks the cup of wrath, judgment, so that all who trust in him don't have to. Oh, what a wonderful Savior we have. Jesus takes the cup. We see the, the culmination of this on the cross where he, where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? Here's what happens. When we pray for the Father's will, when we pray for God's will in our lives, we are saying, God, you are in charge, not me. You know what's best for me, not me. And even if I don't understand all of this, I will continue to wrestle with you in prayer until I can come into agreement with it because our relationship is the most important thing besides any other issue. So when we pray God's will, the Father's will, we're wrestling with God even when we don't understand it. And this is what we see Jesus doing here. And the beautiful part of this is this, is that God invites each of us 
to, to come into a relationship with him, to pray, right? These honest prayers, bold prayers, to, to make all of our requests known to him. He invites us all to do that. But he also invites us to what? To submit to him, to submit to the Father's will. Perhaps God doesn't seem to be answering your prayer. Maybe you feel like you're in, you're in a place right now where it's like, man, God doesn't seem to be showing up the way I would like him to show up or answer in the way that I, that I, I think he should answer. And you're struggling to come into agreement with the will of God. This is what we see Jesus doing. Let's look again at verse 42 through 44 because we see this wrestling match between Jesus and his father and him, him, of course, submitting to his will. He went away a second time and he prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Let's keep going. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, the, the disciples. Because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away. He went away once more. So he goes away one more time. And he prays the same thing, the same exact thing, right? Praying or saying the same thing. So Jesus here is in this deep moment of anguish, of sorrow, of grief, of this overwhelming pressure. Uh, Jesus is being crushed. And out of him is flowing these heartfelt prayers in the same way that an olive is crushed with the heaviness of that wheel. And olive oil is, is released. Jesus, at his, at his most, one of his darkest moments of his life, is being crushed. And he's saying, God, listen, God, if it's possible, can we do it another way? But, but what I want is your will to be done. Above anything else. And, and listen, maybe, maybe you've had moments like that in your life. And here's what I would say. If you can't pray, your will be done, keep praying until you can. If you can't say, God, your will be done, stay there and keep praying until you can. This shows us that we can be honest with God while submitting to him. Let's go to verse number 45. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. And here's what I want you to notice. Notice there's a difference here. Because Jesus had prayed the same thing three different times. But now he's done with his, with his prayer. And now he has resolved. He has committed to what? To doing the will of God. He's saying, listen, it's time. Let's go. It's time. The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of sinners. In other words, Jesus is ready to what? To fully and completely obey the will of his Father. He wasn't there before, but now he's there in that moment. This is good news for all of us, right? Because Jesus doesn't start there. I just want to remind you. Jesus doesn't start there. And, and it rarely happens for us in the same way, right? We don't always start by saying, hey, God, I just want your will to be done. We don't, and that's okay. We say, God, here's what I would like you to do. I would like you to do A, B, and C. That's ideal, right? 
and, and then, then we pray, you know, your will be done. And then we don't see God answering that prayer the way we want it to. So we come back. Well, God, I, I still would like A, B, and C to happen. Um, I, but I want your will. We come back another day. God, I still would like this, this, and this. I would, right? We, don't, we normally don't start there, but listen, we eventually can get there. We can get there to this place. There's a process that happens. I think this is, the, this is what God wants us to see this morning in the prayer in Gethsemane, that there's this process of us submitting to the Father's will and that God welcomes it. Jesus went through this process. Perhaps you will too. This process of saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was falsely arrested. He was accused. He was tried. He was condemned. He was brutally flogged. He had, he had flesh ripped away, ripped off of his back violently. He suffered this unspeakable agony. He was crucified while onlookers jeered. They spat on him. They yelled insults at him. They mocked him because he claimed to be a king. The whole time, blood flowed from his crown down and from his thorns into his beaten and bloodied body. His mother washed, watched in horror. And all of this, if it wasn't horrendous enough, Jesus, who knew no sin, took on sin in himself and put on righteousness for us. Jesus did this all for us. Jesus, the most innocent man in the world, the one the one who was not guilty of any sin, endured all this for us. I had a conversation um, a few weeks ago with a guy from church, and he comes up to me, and um, he asked me a question about the Daniel series, and this, this part in Daniel, you might remember it, it's, um, I think it was with the lion's den, and um, Daniel is found to be innocent, you might remember that, and then the guards are thrown in, and their families are thrown into the lion's den, and their bones are all crushed, and they're, they're obviously killed. He came up to me and said, like, what's up with that? Like, that's not fair. Like, I don't, I, don't, I, I feel like there's, I, something rubs against me. I'm like, I understand that. Like, I get that, and I could see how you might say that's unfair. You might, you might feel like that's unjust. You might feel like that's a God of wrath. And, and, and I asked him a question. I just said, you know, why is it that no one ever gets that upset about Jesus, who is the most innocent person in the world? Why doesn't anyone ever get angry at that injustice? But the most innocent man who ever lived was tortured, was flogged, was beaten, was bloodied. Went to the cross for us. And I understand we, we rail against injustice in our world, and rightly so. But why isn't that God is not getting his justice? Why, aren't we, why, why, why isn't the world care about the justice of God? And that the most innocent man in the world stood in our place, condemned. He was charged as, he, as is if he was guilty. No one seems to care about that. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, he, he takes the cup of God's wrath and judgment. It's meant for sinners. And if you're here today, 
you're far from God. My, my heart, my cry is to, to turn away, to repent of your sin. To, no, no, don't hang on to it. Don't say I'm going to have a little bit of sin in God. Listen, I'm the pastor. I'm going to tell you to, to walk away from your sin and choose to do it God's way. Don't say, well, I want to be blessed and keep doing life my way. Stop. Repent. Turn away from it. Then you might know the blessings of God in your life. That the most innocent man who ever lived took the wrath of God for you. Judgment of God in your place. Second of all, if you're here this morning and you feel like you're Jesus, you, you, you feel like you're praying this prayer, and you've been praying it for months, for years, nothing wrestling with the will of God. You're like, this is what I want, God. And you're crying. Like every night, tears pouring down your face. You're crying. You're, 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 you're praying with your spouse. God, we, this is what we want. This is what we need. And, and you haven't gotten to the place of, 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 of praying that the will of God be done. Listen, I just want, I, I just want to pray with you. Right? That, that you would perhaps get to that place where you could say, God, your will, even if it's in tears, even if it's in anguish, God, I want your will more than anything. God, you know my heart. You know our requests. You know what we want. You know what we need. But God, your will be done. And if it doesn't start there, it's okay. My prayer for you is that it would get there. That you would say, but not as I will, Father. sing a song here in just a moment. It's called Give Me Faith. And it just begins by saying, I may be weak, right? but your spirit right, is strong in me. Right? My flesh may fail, but God, you won't fail me. Right? We're going to sing that right now together. And I just want you to do this. Let's stand up together. And if you're here join me in this posture of prayer. I'm going to say a brief prayer for us and then I'm going to let the guys sing out this, this bridge for us with these words and I want them to become your words this morning. God, we love you and we thank you for this Gethsemane prayer. God, we thank you for prayers that are bold, that are honest, that find us in a place at our darkest moment, God, when we're crushed, when we're overwhelmed with the circumstances, when we feel like all of the weight of the world is on our shoulders, God. We cry out to you in desperation. And God, we need you. We want you. And God, we may not start off by saying your will be done, but God, we want to get there. We want to get there, God. We recognize that our faith is weak, God. Our, our spirit sometimes is weak, God. But we come to you and we ask that you strengthen us in this moment, God. And that your will would be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.